Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, a brand new title from the Zeit magazine team. A new title on food. It's called Wochenmarkt. Plus, Dr. Phil Hammond from Private Eye and a literally festival in the Lusophone world. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Next time you head to a newsstand, be on the lookout for a brand new title by our friends at Zeit Magazine. The German media company has launched today Zeit Magazine Wochenmarkt, a brand new standalone title dedicated to the world of food. Monaco got a sneak peek of the new title this week at their launch party in Milan during Salone del Mobile. And we wanted to know more. Christoph, great having you here in the heart of where everything is happening. I know some people would maybe argue that, of course, events are also unfolding out of the Fiera as well, but there seems to be a lot of action in Brera. But I'm particularly keen to talk about your new launch. Now, we have been talking about this on Monocle on Sunday for it feels like almost a, a year now. I'm but sorry to have bothered you with this. No, and we're, we're, we're happy we got a little bit of a sneak preview last night out on the, the street in front of Barbasso. But I'll let you set it up. We have a new launch. It is hitting newsstands, at least across the Dach, the German-speaking region today. What is the editorial director of Zeit Magazine bringing the world? A new food magazine, which is called Zeit Magazine Wochenmark which of course is the German term for the weekly food markets on the weekends, mostly on the weekends. And it's also the name of the column, the title of the column that we're running now, have been running for 10 years with a fantastic columnist, Elisabeth Räther, who is also the political editor, editor of Die Zeit. So it's kind of a, a really eclectic mix in her job. So, so, so she takes care of the food and politics. So this was a bit of a, of a side project uh, for a bit of a, an enticement to to do the political gig and then uh, yeah. get this little treat on the side? Yeah, I mean, I, I keep asking her, like, do politicians, when you meet them and interview them for a profile, do they ever talk about the recipes? And say, she says, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they keep mentioning, they said, oh, I know your recipes too, by the way. But she, yeah, she's trying to keep that separate. So we developed, out of this weekly column, now a magazine of its own, Zeitmagazin Wochenmarkt. And it's a very, I mean, I hope the idea is to bring you the best of the simple recipes and stories from, you know, what you can expect from Side Magazine, photography, visuals, storytelling. And yeah, very excited. I'm curious to know how much of a sell was this internally? Because of course, if we scan our eyes across the world, we look at the difficulties that many newspaper groups are having, not all of them, and not just newspaper groups. Of course, the world of print is difficult. Mm. What was the selling in process like for the editorial director for everyone to say, right. yeah, Christoph, you've got the green light, go and do the Wochenmark. Everyone in the company was fascinated by the idea of launching a food magazine. But, you know, how do you launch a food magazine these days? And I think the main breaking point internally was that we launched a website with Inside Online first. So we turned the weekly food column into a online site with Inside Online with sort of very good recipe search engines, fabulously programmed and coded by our colleagues. We launched the digital version last year. So on the platform of this digital daily journalism, we now bring you the beautifully produced and edited and, and printed magazine. And I think that's probably one of the ways how you can launch 
a print magazine these days, you have to create a environment where you're reaching out to everyone on all platforms and levels who might be interested in a food magazine by type and then bring them, deliver them the printed magazine. And actually, I mean, we've already sold a couple of thousand subscriptions just within the last couple of weeks via social media, which is amazing. I mean, that's the modern tools, I think, how you can sort of launch a print magazine these days. When we brought out the first issues to the friends here in Milan, everyone, you know, was excited, flipping through the pages, touching the paper. And it's, it's even for me, I mean, I've been in the magazine business now for 20 years, and it's still so exciting. You get the first copy of a new magazine and you feel it, you touch it. It's something that only a magazine can deliver. And we should be clear, this is a standalone project as well, yes. just in the same way that, of course, the, the Detite franchise has other standalones. This is, doesn't come as a as a bylog, it's not a side order supplement. This has to live on its own as well. Oh, absolutely. And it's a biannual on the newsstands like Zeitmagazin Mann. And it's, I think that's a model that we can use. I mean, so we have the weekly magazine. We bring you the weekly recipes under the label Wochenmarkt. We have the digital daily service for you. And then now we can also bring you sort of coffee table magazine journalism twice a year. And I think that's sort of a, a model that you can, I think, we're doing with Zeit Magazine Mann in a similar way. And, you know, we're already thinking about different fields with magazines where we can use the same type of model, I think. Are we allowed to talk about a, a small project or at least a spinoff that might be reaching another German-speaking market? Uh, no. No. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, you, you, can, you, can, you can tease our readers and I, I'm party to it. You can tease our listeners and readers yeah. about this over the coming stretch. Let's just focus on what's happening in the magazine landscape right now, because mm. listen, we can look to Condé Nast, we see, let's call it a consolidation, or maybe it's a bit of a, a step back from having regional editions. We see a lot of, let's say, pen regional titles becoming a bit thinner. And then you have, of course, it's not just your group. I mean, we see some confident moves happening elsewhere as well. It's kind of curious though, and maybe, maybe this takes us a little bit to the world of Deutschland Incorporated. You, you know, your friends on the other side of town at Springer, now you've caught one of Germany's bigger, one of Europe's bigger media groups, snatching up a very powerful U.S. media brand in foreign hands. Now it's in German hands. You've got your group going forward with, as we've hinted at, not just what's come out today, but also other launch ambitions as well. Do you see almost a division or, or the, the home of the printed word, or at least the printed press, uh, Germany, maybe there's a certain level of confidence that you don't see maybe in the US or the UK or elsewhere right now? Well, it seems to be like that. I agree with your, your analysis. I think that at the end of the day, magazines or, you know, formats that have this kind of magazine-y idea of looking at the world with a certain perspective, live from that certain perspective. So I think it, it all goes back to the, you know, the, the leaders of the teams, the people who are inspiring their teams to look at the world in a certain way. And if you look at all the titles or media groups that are doing comparatively well, I think it's happening in those houses. And I think once you shy away from the fact that, you know, personalities, younger or older personalities, women, men can sort of bring their perspective into a magazine or, you know, a podcast company, I think you are stepping back from journalism. And in the end, the readers might not understand, but they feel it. You know, you can feel if a magazine is edited by someone who's not editing magazines. And that's just, you know, what's happening at the moment, I think. It sounds rather basic, but no, but it is kind of stunning how many places you see that someone is installed 
and I, yeah, I, you can't, I, listen, I don't believe you can call someone who's a brand manager who is maybe looking after an automotive division to suddenly move them to a media company and say, okay, go do journalism today. Yeah. And I think that on the other hand, like editorial directors or editors in chiefs, you know, have to be brand managers as well. Of course, we, we need to look at the strategy of media brands of the, you know, the magazines of the brands that we're working for. But I strongly believe that it has to come from a journalistic background and from a journalistic point of view. And I think that readers, listeners, in the end, they feel it. They feel the energy. They feel the emotional involvement of people really fighting for what they do and for what they love, enjoy doing, you know, editing magazines or radio stations. Yeah. Just before we go, take us through the pages. Just as you said, this grew out of obviously something which, which is, of course, part of the the weekly mix insight magazine, yeah. but you get so much more. This is not a best of, which, yeah. which is also one of the great things. It has, of course, the, the visual and journalistic foundations that built the franchise that this will become. What else is part of the mix though? Well, of course, you know, we do reportage. We have a, a wonderful, beautiful photography portfolio by Iris Hum, who also is working for Confect and Monocle magazine. That's just an example. I saw a story that she did, I think for Confect about this lemon farmer. And it's one of my favorite food photographs ever, this massive lemon. And I looked at this lemon and I was like, oh, she's fantastic. And so I was really happy that she, she joins us for Zeit Magazine Wochenmarkt with her portfolio about food photography from all over the world. We send reporters out in the world to tell us stories, you know, bring back uh, stories, not, not generic food journalism that you sometimes see, but really personal stories. And, and Elisabeth Räther, our food columnist, went to Stuttgart and interviewed Vincent Klink, one of the most famous German chefs. We asked uh, Tim Rauer, the uh, Berlin-based chef, about what he really eats in a daily week. And so we're really getting into the food world. And the great thing about it so far is that the advertisers jumped on the magazine. And, and apparently, from what I know, is that we, we sold quite well. So we're going for the uh, second issue next spring. And now we're really happy that Zeitmagazin Wochenmarkt is finally out. Well, it's fantastic seeing you here. There will be copies, certainly in Zurich, by the time people hear this, also in London very soon. Christoph Armand, very good to talk to you. Thank you for having me, Tyler. Zeit Magazine's editorial director, Christoph Armand, stopped by our pop-up Monaco 24 radio studio in Milan to review all to Monaco's own editorial director, Tyler Brulé. As promised in last week's show, we have more private eye content for you. This time, Monaco's Tone Edwards spoke with Dr. Phil Hammond, the title's outspoken in-house doctor, comedian and campaigner. Phil just published a new book called Private Eye, Dr. Hammond's COVID Casebook. Dr. Phil has had plenty to say in his fortnightly column about where we went wrong throughout the coronavirus crisis. And now these collected and updated columns will be published in the book. Let's hear the conversation between Tong and Phil. Well, Dr. Phil Hammond, it's been really interesting. I've been looking forward to this moment because I've been reading your fortnightly dispatches even more keenly than I used to before the pandemic, of course, over the last 18 months or so. And before coming and talk to you, I was thinking about it and it was as much because, you know, one would be entertained. A nice bit of mordant wit, the chance to hear an expert unafraid at times to say, well, I don't have all the answers right now. And that was almost as important as the substantive stuff that you were writing about. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, is that how you look at it? Is it as important, you know, how you communicate your ideas, your skill, your wit as a writer, as the substance of what you're saying when you're doing these columns? Private life for me over my adult lifetime has been like a natural fit 
for the way that I look at the world. So I like that combination of proper news reporting with satirical columns plus cartoons. So whatever great tragedy befalls us, that just resonates with me. So I've always wanted to write for Private Eye and Paul Foote, who is one of its most famous journalists, came to speak at our school when I was a student. And he said it was the closest thing we have in this country to a free press. And he told a very funny story about the fact that they were doing germ warfare in Portland Down and they broke the story and the heavies came and visited the eye office and said to the security forces, do you mind not talking about that? And he was very funny in the way that he told these stories. And obviously we've uh, exposed various charlatans over the years. But I think as I've got slightly older, I've become less sensationalist, less eager to shock and more interested in getting balance. And I was trying to, in the pandemic column, sort of illustrate how science works and, and science lives on uncertainty. You form a hypothesis, you try and prove it wrong. You almost celebrate your mistakes because that's how you progress. So it's about a certain honesty and uncertainty. And of course, politics is the antithesis of that. In politics, you rarely admit that you've made a mistake. You have to get the truth dragged out of you at a public inquiry 10 years later. And so politicians having to deal with such a scientific process. We laugh about following the science. Well, that's fine for heart attacks when there's very established science to follow. But in pandemics, there's no science to follow, really. We've never had lockdowns before. There's no evidence-based playbook of lockdowns. The research on masks is full of holes. And so there is a lot of uncertainty and it's okay to say, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen next. And we may have to change direction as the evidence accrues. And here are a few cartoons as well, just to tickle your fancy on that journey. Well, yeah. And I was going to ask you about this, well, the fallacy almost of following the science, because that is something that you've often come back to. You've already mentioned there why that notion is inherently problematic. But do you think the UK government has made it more so? And I wonder, can we pinpoint exactly how badly the UK, the Conservative government, Johnson personally, has done in hand, well, handling, mishandling the pandemic. Is it that he was simply more interested in presenting himself and his worldview rather than getting stuck into the very important detail of the challenge that was ahead of us? It's hard to know. Epidemiologists always love to say, I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. I mean, yes, he had Brexit on his plate and a new partner and another pregnancy, et cetera. And then he got himself ill by shaking everyone's hands in hospital. So he was a slight master of his own downfall. So yes, could it have been, if Jacinda Ardern had been our prime minister rather than Boris Johnson, would it have made a difference? Probably a bit. But the most interesting thing to me is when SAGE, the committee advising the government, retrospectively released all their minutes. So another group called Independent SAGE said, I don't like the way the government's handling it. We should know who's on the board of SAGE and who all these advisors are and what their advice is. And retrospectively, we saw all the minutes. And to me, that was the most revealing thing at the very beginning, because it was almost like the, the stance was from Dad's army. Fraser and Dad's army were doomed. Uh, they figured out that if a new virus comes along that spreads without symptoms, so not like SARS in 2003, this one spreads without symptoms and has a long incubation period. It's fiendishly difficult to stop. And most of the early advice said, you know, masks, lockdowns, border controls, none of it will make any difference. It's just going to come and get us until vaccines arrive. And it was only when other countries, East Asian countries and places like Australia and New Zealand decided, hey, we're not going to take that. We're going to try strict border controls, quarantine, airport screening, et cetera. And they started getting much better results that we realized that, you know, for a very rich island nation with public health expertise, we probably should have done better. But how much of that you can pin on the conservative government and how much of it was, you know, the feeling that this is unstoppable, I don't know. I think also because the Chinese fezzed up to it a bit late, 
the World Health Organization dithered a bit because they were wary of upsetting the Chinese government and didn't declare an emergency until January the 31st, which is probably two months after the pandemic started. And if you look at the flight routes out of Wuhan and everywhere else, it was probably all over the world by then. But even despite that, an international inquiry set up by the World Health Organization found that it could have still probably been stopped if all countries had acted as one in the months of February and March. So we'd all said, this is a global pandemic. We need to globally shut it down. We could have done it. It's just that we decided to adopt a wait and see policy. We didn't think it would be that bad. It'll just be a bit worse than flu, but not too much. And we didn't really realize how unpleasant the SARS-CoV-2 virus was. It's almost like a dirty bomb. It's a multi-system illness that goes off everywhere, gives you kidney damage, clotting damage, strokes, etc. We didn't realize until too late how unpleasant a virus it was. Well, yeah, and, I, and hopefully there'll be those learnings, both in terms of a coordinated global response, but as you mentioned there already, the efficacy of, of other measures to counter such things if they come again. One of the other refrains, though, Dr. Forham, that you've issued quite frequently during this is the urgency of reviewing not only how we talk about, but how we fund and resource public health. And I wondered, is it a vainglorious hope or an ambition that the last two years could prompt a meaningful change on that front in this country because you've, again, you keep coming back in your columns to highlighting, you know, pretty stark inequalities, lack of funding, very compelling comparisons with other countries, how much Germany and the UK spend per head of population or per as part of GDP on, on public health. Could that be a silver lining to this cloud that keeps enduring? Yes, but again, it's up to politicians to make that case and to us to vote for it. I mean, for a rich island nation, again, we don't put comparatively as much into our health service and healthcare service and public health services as, say, Germany, a comparably wealthy country with a similar population. And you get what you pay for, in a sense. So going into the pandemic, we had fewer intensive care beds, longer waiting lists, bigger staff vacancies in health and social care than many other countries. And so we just simply didn't have the spare capacity to deal with it. But to move upstream, the pandemic was almost like a stress test. Somebody called it a barium enema for all our societal weaknesses. So unsurprisingly, the poor have been hit far worse than the rich. You know, there's this great phrase that we're in the same storm, but we're on very different boats. I've sat in my lovely house and largely self-isolated and done most of my NHS clinics via video with people delivering to my door with whom I'm eternally grateful for. But if you're a, a poor, poorly paid frontline staff and you couldn't afford to work from home and you expose yourself to the virus and you needed to put money on the table and couldn't afford to isolate, it's going to have a worse effect on you. But, you know, even before the pandemic, the rich in this country live a decade longer than the poor and have 20 years more high quality living where they're free of disease. I mean, that's a pretty shocking inequality, which we've accepted in the UK and it doesn't have to be like this. And, and Scandinavian countries with more equal societies and better public health services did better partly for that reason. So yes, it should be a wake-up call, but it needs a political party to make that point very strongly and for us to want to vote to pay more taxes because what we've learned is that vaccines can do amazing things, but they're expensive. Healthcare costs a lot of money and so does social care. But what better things to spend your money on, I would say, than a humane society where we look after people who need it most, which was the vision of the welfare state and the NHS when it was founded. Well, yeah. And the casebook provides a compelling commentary, not just on, you know, what's happened over the last two years, but these themes like that, that you keep coming back to. I sense I know what you're going to say about about this, Phil, but what prospect of any sort of inquiry then or report involving all of these other stakeholders you've mentioned that could deliver anything comparable to the, I don't know, the scope of your insights in this book? It seems rather unlikely from this vantage point. Are you similarly gloomy in terms of the prospects for that happening? 
I think the public inquiry will actually be very thorough and very thoughtful, but probably too late. And I say that because I was involved in the Bristol Heart Inquiry, which at the time was the largest public inquiry in British history. And that again was because of something that I'd broken in private eye seven years previously. So I wrote a story about far too many babies were suffering death and brain damage because a very brave anaesthetist had blown the whistle. And that was just in a single unit in Bristol. It took them seven years to order this public inquiry, and it took them three years to figure out how many excess deaths had happened in that particular unit compared to other comparable units in the country. So the level of complexity moving on from that inquiry, which took three years, to one that is looking at how many lives might we have saved with our lockdowns? How many of lives might we have saved if we'd locked down sooner, perhaps come out earlier, done border control, comparing us to other countries? I mean, statistically, that is staggering complexity. And I would imagine would take at least five years, probably longer to do it properly. And they will produce an incredibly thorough, lengthy, detailed report. And hopefully it will be testament to the lives lost and the harm done. But it may be we're into the next pandemic by then. It may be, you know, I th Boris Johnson will be way over the hills by then, probably doing a world comedy tour somewhere, getting £2,000 a gig. And people who should be called to account won't be called to account in real time. So I think the pub inquiry will be worth it, but I think it will be too late. That was Dr. Phil Hammond. His book, Private Eye, Dr. Hammond's COVID casebook, is out now. And finally on the show, we're heading to Lisbon to speak with Carlos Moura Carvalho, curator of Abecedario, Festival da Palavra, a literary festival that is set to happen this weekend in Portugal, Brazil and Cape Verde, with special guests such as Portugal's president Marcelo Rebelo de Souza. The theme of the event this year is proximity. I spoke with Carlos about the highlights for this year's festival. Last year was was a pity because we had all the festival was ready and and was the pandemic and so it was very difficult but now this is the third edition of of the Absidario it will take place in Portugal Brazil and Cabo Verde this time and from September 10th to 12th the mission is promoting street bookstores through a series of gatherings that pay homage to a word and the word this year is proximity in the last year and a half, almost two years, for reasons that we are well aware of, calls for social distancing have been heard almost daily. Everywhere we go, it's the same word, social distancing. And this distancing was almost unanimous practice. Now we are in a different time or, or becoming in the, in the different time. We are slowly returning to normality, but there are some people that continue to pay some difficulties with, with all this matter, not even in, in the, the question of mental health, but also the artists and the people from culture that are a little bit in the, with problems nowadays. It's very important that we return to libraries, we return to culture uh, slowly, but this is the aim of the festival. And I like it's very close to my heart as well, because it, it's almost a, as a tribute to the Portuguese language, because you invited countries and authors as well from Brazil, from Cape Verde. Was that also one of your, you want kind of to put all the Lusophone countries together and share inspirations, literary inspirations as well? Yeah, that's it. This year, the highlights are the first day we have a, a very interesting conversation 
a group of six boys and girls under 20 that are going to talk with a very famous politician and public figure here in Portugal. But one of the highlights is also the participation of the Minister of Culture and the Creative Interest of Cabo Verde, a very interesting man from culture, and he made a wonderful work in Cabo Verde, not even in, in literature, but also in, in law and copyright. I met him some years ago in Geneva, and I was fascinated. His mind is a very incredible man. This year, we have also a lot of Brazilians, writers and journalists that are living in Portugal. So it's very important to give them a word. And we have Lira Neto, João Gabriel de Lima, Paul Marcun, that is a famous journalist from TV, the Brazilian TV. So I think it's a very interesting point. And where is the festival taking place? I, can someone follow also online? But I know it, some talks will be hosted in bookshops, bookstores, right? Yeah. In Lisbon, we have three bookstores, more books, bookstores, very, very known here in Lisbon. Barata, Tinta dos Nervos, Stolen Books. Also in Aveiro, we have another bookstore. And this is in Portugal. And in Cabo Verde, in the Cidade da Praia, we will have another bookstore. And in one boutique and fantastic bookstore, for me, maybe one of the most interesting bookstores in the world, that is Zacra in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I met Lucio Zacra some years ago, and he's a fantastic man, a fantastic personality, and very interesting. And the bookstore, it's a boutique bookstore. But every conversation or every talks, we are going to the Facebook on live and also register in, in podcast for later listeners. I think it's fantastic. And Carlos, of course, you've been living through the pandemic as, you know, as we all have been there. How do you feel, do you think the publishing market, for example, in Portugal or even Brazil, Cape Verde, do you think things are picking up in terms of kind of publishing? How do you feel? Are you feeling optimistic? Yeah, I'm feeling optimistic. I think in this pandemic, obliged us to, to, to change a lot of things and we have to change. And it's a challenge, but I'm very, very positive, uh, usually. And I think if not a way, other way. Our festival is an example. Usually I prefer the small conversations, the proximity, the tertulias, as we say here in, in Portugal, in literary tertulias. But nowadays we change a little bit and we didn't pay travels for Brazilian and other people. We received people that are near, Brazilians that are near, people from Cabo Verde that are near, and the online transmission is absolutely free and easy nowadays. So we have a lot to change and to explore, and this will be very challenging for us. That's very exciting. Carlos, thank you so much for being here on the stack, and good luck as well. <laughs> Fernando, thank you very much. That was Carlos Moura Carvalho, and if you're interested, there's more information on their Facebook and Instagram page, Abecedário Festival da Palavra. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Dewars. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. This is DJ Koze with Pick Up. 
You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. It's sad to think Sad to think, I guess neither one of us wants to be the first to say 